You are listening to iFanboy Talksplode with Terry Moore. Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com, and this is Talksplode. I am here today with uh, comic book creator, writer, cartoonist, uh, Terry Moore. Hello. Hi. I was uh, surprised when I realized I've I've never had like a long-form conversation with you. We've had you on our video show lots of time and little chats here and there, Um, but we never got to do one of these, and so I was really looking forward to this. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Now, in in thinking about this and and going forward, I realized that I, I... over the years, have little bits and ideas about your background and and sort of how you came up through comics, but I don't really know. Or if I did know at some point, I kind of forgot. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have have other careers as a musician and as as an editor. Is that right? Well, yeah, that's true. Um, I was really a musician as a teenager and in my twenties, um, working guy. You know, in a cover band. You know, yep. the kind that played in clubs around town and the next few cities all around. Um, so I did that, you know, and I was trying, hoping to go further with it. But, but like you made a go of it. Like you, you yeah, were, that was your thing. Yeah. It was, uh, I was all about it. Um, that was my identity. And, uh, but um, at some point I um, switched over to video editing and I did that for about 10 years um, into my mid thirties. So um, and that's because my dad was a commercial director. Oh, okay. And eventually he had his own uh, production company. Mm-hmm. So when I was looking to get out of the club circuit, um, I used my nepotism card and got a job at his company and kind of learned how to taught myself how to edit and went from there. And so did you, you were, I'm, I'm before, I'm going to get to the video because as it turns out, I have a degree in video uh, oh. and I didn't, I wasn't even a professional editor, but um. So when you were you were playing music, were you, were you just you know like out on the out on the roads or at the clubs, just doing you know whatever paying gigs? You're a guitarist and anything else, or yeah, you know it's uh, it's a fun life for somebody who's really young. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's you know just terrible. The money is terrible, practically non-existent. It's a lot worse now. Yeah, I bet. I mean, because you know, uh, if you're a cover band, you're not going anywhere. So you're just playing for beer and 20 bucks. But we were the kind of band that, you know, played, you know, every weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, you know, a regular circuit. And I did that for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played in a lot of different bands. But, um, you know, the truth is, I think everybody in my generation was in a band. Yeah. Uh, so that's just the way it was. It's like everybody now uh, is into computers and programming or video games. It's the, you know, it was that. It was, music was the video games of my generation. <laughs> Do you still get an itch to play in front of people sometimes, or did you get out of your system? Um, I got the, I don't want to play in front of people, but I still play every day and I love it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's, that's for young people. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of guys at Blues Jams who disagree with you entirely. I, yeah, I guess so. And and maybe there are a handful of uh, old guys who can uh, maintain their dignity while they're up playing. Um, there's certainly a graceful way to go. Oh, that's what uh, you're you're trying to maintain your dignity. That's where you're going wrong. Yeah, and that's where I'm going wrong. I, yeah. And, and, you know, because of that, I do admire the old blues guys and, and the jazz guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if you're 65 or 75 years old and you have, you're bald and <laughs> What's left is down to your back, <laughs> uh, and you're still wearing leather at 65. I don't know, man. This, <laughs> I think I'll just wait over here in the wings. <laughs> it's a scene. It's a whole scene. Uh, okay. Well, good luck. <laughs> now, th- this might be just for my evocation, but when when were you when were you video editing? What were you using? Was it was it digital or was it with a crossover of that? I I was in it long enough to. The guys who taught me were on two inch. Mm-hmm. And they had just built a one-inch tape facility that they thought was state-of-the-art. And this was, you know, Ugh. back in the early 80s. 
And um, I remember at about year two, they got an ADO and sent me out to California to go to ADO school for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Not a year, uh, a week. And um, so, and then I guess right around the right around 1990 or so the avids started coming out mm-hmm. uh the random access editors so we got one of the first one of that i think we were like the company i was working for in houston by that time they were like only the in the first dozen companies in the united states that got an avid system mm-hmm. so i started on that very early and then i used avids uh all the way through the rest of my career i was mostly a i could do all the effects but i was mostly a cutter i like to right. cut uh, yeah. sequencing and stories um and i, I think that uh, as a segue here yeah i was i was on I that think, too <laughs> i think that being an editor uh gave me a tremendous um point of view when it was time to draw sequential comics so you know, you're getting to the end of that. You, I assume you just, I were like, didn't want to do it anymore. You wanted to try something else. How do you make the the leap from sort of doing that to doing comics? Are you doing them concurrently for a while? I did. I did them both for a couple of years mm-hmm. uh, because I was making a great living. I was a senior editor. And, um, you know, I had a family with two kids mm-hmm. and a house payment. So I can't just say, oh, gosh, I'm just going to go off and be an artist now and good luck. Um, I had to make sure, so when I was getting into comics, I was really serious about it. It's not because I just wanted to draw and share, it's Uh because I wanted a career in comics. So I was looking for a way to get, to match my income. Uh Um, And that's really the reason why I didn't just start doing odd jobs for DC or something. and, And I was really looking to get my own book. Because I had learned my lesson with cover bands that, you know, you you play other people's stuff, you go nowhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it was time for comics, I thought, okay, I'm getting one more chance here to do something creative. The the key is to do my own thing. Uh, If I draw Batman, I will be the one millionth person drawing Batman. But if I do Stranger in Paradise, I'll be the only person doing it. So my my goal was to self-publish and try to uh, make a living. And support my family. And it's interesting, you know, if, if people are listening to this now, you know, the context of that is we're talking about sort of the 80s independent boom, which was sort of the first time where it seemed like that was a possibility for a lot of people. Were, were you following along with that? And, and or because I'm, I'm, I wasn't really paying attention at the time, but, you know, were you sort of part of that first wave or were you seeing like, hey, this is happening for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever, I, I can do this too? No, and if you think of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is something of a first wave, uh-huh. even though they were kind of solo. But, I mean, there were some other things, ElfQuest and all that, that were happening in Cerebus. the 80s. Cerebus, ElfQuest, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So if those guys kind of opened a portal, then there was a Brat Pack that came along uh, a few years later, like uh, the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. And it was Jeff Smith and Colleen Duran and all these even Neil Gaiman was part of that Brat Pack. Um, there were about six people there. I was not in that group. I was in the third group that came along after them. They kind of kicked the, the barn door wide open. And then they were everywhere. You could go to any con and meet one of them. And that's when I showed up on the scene and I started talking to them and drilling them for answers. How does this work? Um, what are the possibilities for, you know, full-time living and all that. So they were my mentors, you know, the people that I could befriend in that group. And you just sort of went there and, and sought people out who were like-minded and they were helpful? Yeah. They, That's kind of they amazing. They really were. Yeah. There was a, there was a something of a, um, there was a little bit of a movement. And, you know, if you were interested, they were happy to talk to you. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was, uh, and, and the group I came in with, the year I started, like in '93, mm-hmm. uh, there were probably a hundred people showing up at San Diego that all had their own first little comic, you know, that they'd mm-hmm. printed somewhere. Now, so what was your background in terms of drawing and telling stories and creating comics? Because you know that that's not a thing that comes right away. It, it take it takes time uh, to sort of learn that craft. So where did you develop that? Honestly, I developed it in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I was lucky enough to meet a, when I moved to Texas in the sixth grade, I met the first thing, the very first week I met a guy and we became friends because he lived on the same block and he was already drawing cartoons of um, these toads in checkered suits smoking cigars and, you know, they would drive a Volkswagen Beetle off the cliff and explode and um, we were, I started drawing with those guys, him and his friend and they were they were doing a lot of Don Martin ripoffs from Mad Magazine, mm-hmm. and Mad Magazine was a big deal with us, and creepy and eerie and all that. So we did that for fun all the way through junior high, and by the time I got into high school, I was drawing every day at school, you know, in class and homeroom and study hall. Um, and the goal was to try to make my friends laugh. I, I we'd draw during a class and then show it, show the drawing to each other in uh, the hall. Well, it wasn't pinups, it was sequences because like if you mm-hmm. wanted these if you wanted the Volkswagen to blow up, if you wanted it to be funny, you had to do a setup. And I learned that the more setup there was, the funnier it was. <laughs> so my little, you know, three three panels turned into one full notebook page with about 15 panels on it. And then if you were, then my friends started doing three pages of setup and then this massive explosion and all the aftermath. Well, you know, I laughed so hard I peed. And so now I'm doing three pages of sequential art, setting it all up, all that, you know, and you just learn it from natural evolution of, you know, just doing it all the time. Um, And then because you want to get better at it, you start paying attention to how the comics are drawn. Every comic we bought, every magazine uh, finding the good cartoonists like Gan Wilson or Don Martin or whoever, you know. Um, so it was. I think it was really grassroots and very uh, evolutionary, as opposed to. Gee, I went to University of Texas and some old person taught it to me. <laughs> it wasn't that. So you really just became a student of uh, which, which in a way is is a lot more impressive. If you know, it's not a Google that you're looking at. It's really sort of going, getting your hands on stuff, and and finding what works for you. Which is, it was a lot harder, you know, pre-internet, just to learn about all that stuff. So you must have really been uh, committed to that. Yeah, and it's really it's going to be really hard for most people to understand this, uh, but. I was in high school in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing on but, re, you know. Three channels. Magnum, Magnum PI or whatever. <laughs> uh, and Star Trek reruns. So, yeah, there was no computer or anything. It was just uh, magazines and comics that you found at a 7-Eleven or at the grocery store. So um, it was hard to find source material. Um, Right about the time we got out of high school was when uh, Half Price books started showing up and people were dumping all their comics and magazines and everything. So we were buying all that stuff and everything. Uh, And that's also – the good thing about that period of time was it was also the heyday for National Lampoon, Mm -hmm. which had the best cartoonists in the world in the back pages of it. Um, So we were learning from the best. So would you say you styled yourself a little more after sort of like humor cartoonist rather than say, you know, uh, you know, superhero artists or things like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I didn't care at all about mainstream comics at that point. I was all about underground. Anything that was irreverent, and filthy and, um, you know, just uh, my hero was, um, you know, like Fritz the Cat and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't into psychedelic comics because I wasn't a big fan of drugs. I knew that uh, the only thing I had going for me was my brain, and I didn't want to mess it up. <laughs> so I didn't like to be around that kind of stuff. But um, I really did love the the free thinkers and the and the lone individual cartoonist that was, you know, making strong statements with their pen and pencil. But then you ended up going in a very narrow direction when you started doing Strangers in Paradise. How did that develop for you? Was was the germ of what it was very different from sort of what it turned into? Yeah. Um, the That's what happens when you take that teenage cartoonist mm-hmm. and you make him sit in an edit suite and, and put stories together for a long time. Uh, when, I, when I left editing and wanted to get into comic books... I really knew how to sequence a story. Um, so I was looking for something creative to do, and I thought, well, comics is something I, I've tried music. 
mm-hmm. and I, I can't go back. So comics is what I have left now. And I saw the indie movement, and you could you know find something like Cerebus where he would just pontificate for 20 pages, and I thought, well, I can do that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I kind of had this idea. Of, I had been drawing some sequences and a lot of comic strips at home for the previous five years because I had really kind of hoped to get into syndicate cartooning. Mm-hmm. Um, it never worked out, thank God, because the newspaper industry crashed soon after. But um, I had developed my core characters that I needed for Strangers, and uh, when I saw the comic book indie movement, I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And I just drew, I spent 30 days drawing the first issue on my kitchen table and took it around to shows and sent it out to every publisher. And um, the only one who responded with an offer was Antarctic Press. So I said yes. Um, and they put it out as the, a three-part miniseries. Um and I let them do that so that I would have my name on a book, and they paid the cost of the book, and I would use the book as my calling card from then on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they helped me set up the networking. With while they were while that book was coming out from them, I went to shows and promoted myself just as hard as if I was self-publishing. Um, and I was my own advertising. You know, here's this yeah. book I'm doing. I want to do more. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm curious, uh, given that. I mean, that's a, a different world of comics than it is now. Like, what was your strategy for doing or Were you sort of feeling your way and finding And I don't mean making the comic. I mean literally getting other people to look at it or to read it. Or I mean, was your goal to do more of them? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I only had the one issue, mm-hmm. uh, and it was on Xerox form, and that's how it went out to everybody. And it was not the one that was published. It was a rougher mm-hmm. uh, first version. Um, so people really had to – I was hoping people would see potential – Right. see more in it I learned that nobody sees potential they just see what they see <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, so I just I, I submitted it I got that I got a call from Antarctic and they said we like this uh, but we can't put it out as just one do you think you could do a second one uh, you know a second issue and I said well yeah I can try well because what we'd like to do is do maybe a three-part miniseries and I was going through the roof in my chair. I thought, well, this is great. I've made it. It's called a destiny. <laughs> so I said, yes, I will do it. And I didn't have the second issue written or drawn or anything. But I said, yes, of course I can do it. Did you have an um, idea for what it would be, the story? No. Oh. No, not at all. <laughs> that makes me feel better. I like that. That's great. Yeah, I was winging it all the way. And I learned that from my dad. My dad went through a lot of jobs when he was young. And he bluffed his way into every one of them. He said, yes, of course I can do that. And he learned on the job. So that was just something we all knew in our family that, you know, if you want to move up, you can't wait till you're ready. You know, always, all the time, you just have to go for it. So I just said, yeah. And then I made myself keep drawing the book. And 107 issues later, I had the series. Mm-hmm. That's, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's skipping a couple <laughs> steps in the middle. But sure, I guess we're done with it then. Yeah, cut to the apocalypse, and there yeah, we are. That's totally fine. So you finished the three... Um, you know, like how long before, when did you, when did you move to doing it full time then? You said about two years, but. Um, well, yeah. I, okay. So the, I had the first issue drawn. They said, okay, we're going to publish it. And the next, we got to solicit it. So the first chance we get to put it out will be November. And this was like in July. And. I said, great. And then after I hung up the phone, I thought, oh, no, they're going to publish it. Everybody's going to see this, and I know I can do better. Mm-hmm. So I lost my lead time because I decided to completely rewrite and redraw the first issue. And that's the the rewrite and the redraw is the one that you see, where I, up, I updated a lot of things and made it what it is. Um, and then by the time that one came out, I was only five issues into issue two, and it was due in three weeks. After that, I was just on the you know, the deadline cycle. And they put out three issues and a trade paperback, which was their very first trade paperback they ever had to print. Um, The book got good critical reviews, but it had, you know, it's tiny little sales numbers. I think Mm -hmm. the orders for number two were only 1,200, only 1,200 orders for the second issue. Mm -hmm. So it was just a tiny print run. Um, 
when it was all said and done, I made a total of $1,700 out of three comics in a trade. And it had taken me four months to get all that done. And I thought, well, okay, well, this is not the career I'm looking for. (laughs) I can't live on this. So I knew immediately that I needed to leave them and self-publish. And it took me nine months before my first self-published issue came out. And I spent that time, you know, soliciting and writing the next thing and promoting what I had done. And and I went to my first San Diego with uh, the trade and the T-shirt and promoted the hell out of it and said, okay, the the series is beginning in September. So that was my self-publish. What did that mean in terms of promoting? Were you going up and talking to buyers or media or, you know, just anybody? I did two things. Um, For the first, I learned very quickly that the only people who could help me get positioned and, and... get planted in the industry were the retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, other artists can't help you. Um, so I spent my whole first two years networking and meeting retailers. Like, for instance, I spent the first year uh, calling all the big chain stores on the East Coast and in the Midwest. And most of them, there were a lot of chains back then that, that would have multiple stores, but they only had one buyer. Mm-hmm. So you find out who the buyer is, you talk to him and, and send him samples and uh, hope that they will carry the book. And then when he places an order, he orders for you know eight stores. So it was a waterfall effect. Um, you talk to one person and get a, you know, the information goes out to more and more people. And then the second year I spent, the second year calling uh, West Coast stores. And I decided to, there's nobody to call in the middle, so you just let them fill in by, you know, they'll follow whatever the coasts are doing. Uh, Also Canada. Canada was very active back in those days. And we had, um, back in that time, I think, when I first started, I had 17 distributors. I was going to ask, is it, yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Uh, (laughs) It was every, you know, so you get all those distributors going and get them all to carry you. So that was, you know, the whole first year of phone calls, too. Um, and then once they all carry you, there's your orders, right? And then when I went to a show, the trick was I would have my trade there and I had underpriced it trying to get it to move. I mean, it was, I think it was the last time I've ever seen a trade paperback that sold for six ninety five, and I had a t-shirt and I would give out free sketches if somebody would wear the t-shirt for the rest of the day at the con. Mm-hmm. So my first day at San Diego, eventually there were like 50 people walking around with a Stranger in Paradise t-shirt, and it started a buzz. Like, what is this? And uh, people like Chris Claremont came over to the table to check me out and things like that. So um, just gonzo marketing stuff, you know. It, it's it's really interesting because, you know, the, the clearly you had thought about this and, and put in the effort. And, you know, a lot of people... You know, they might have talent, they might have ability, but, you know, that kind of only goes so far as producing the product. But I'm wondering, did you always know that this was going to be part of it? Or is, is like, I know you were making up as you were going along, but, you know, did you know that going into part of it, the, uh, like the, a big part, half of it's going to be being a salesman, basically, and being a carnival barker almost to a, to a certain extent? Yeah, I did know that because... Um... <sighs> Just because I'd already worked in two creative industries, Mm -hmm. and so I was really familiar with the stereotype that a lot of people have talent, but they don't have anything else that they need to to get somewhere with it. You know, there's a lot of talent sitting at home, um, burning out their brain or drinking their talent away or not promoting or they're self-destructing in one way or the other. And usually, the people that can get that become um, that get somewhere are the ones who not only have the talent, but they put in the work and they're dependable and they have their, they have a, a vision of the, of the big picture and they're working the big picture. They're not just like infatuated with their own talent and navel gazing all the time. They also realize, okay, I've made this beautiful thing. And now my mission is to get the world to see it. Um, because if you leave it to other people, it won't happen, you know? So, um, it, and it, if, in terms of art, 
I mean, all you have to do is read about somebody like Andy Warhol or any of the Impressionists and look at all the work uh, that they put into making sure that their art was taken care of once it existed. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't just make these beautiful little snowflakes and then just throw them out the window and you know hope that the world uh, will do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to you have to foster it and make sure that it uh, gets off on the right path and. Then once the world has it, you know, now it's out of your hands. But, um, yeah, making it is only the first half of the job. And what what was your pitch for what Strangers in Paradise was? Because um, at first, if, what I find about the book is that at first it seems like one thing, and then later you find out it's much different than that, but also is still the first thing. It's It's a lot of stuff, and I'm wondering, A, how did you explain it, and B, you know, did you know it was going to sort of morph into a, I'm trying to think of the, I want to say spy story, but that, which is kind of correct, but you know, there's all, there's a lot of elements there. Uh, it's not just a relationship romance book. It's, it's a bunch of different things. So was that part of your pitch or was that part of your plan? That was a lot of no, questions. In the big, be- yeah, it is. It's, Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, in the beginning it was simply a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly because it's the easiest thing to write. Mm-hmm. Everybody can relate. Um, and because, you know, I came from a humor background, so um, I was the only, I was a young man. Mm-hmm. The only thing I was interested in was uh, sex and humor. Um, so I wrote about that. Um, the thing that that bothered me, though, was that's what, that was my approach on the miniseries. Mm-hmm. And the miniseries really is kind of like um, a little one-act play that's just kind of uh, kind of goofy. And then when I started my self-published series nine months later, um, I suddenly was struck by this sense of responsibility. Like, like, okay, I'm going to have a platform here. Uh, this, you know, you never know who's going to read this book, and they're reading your thoughts and your words. What do you, you, you better have something more to say than uh, college humor mm-hmm. uh, when you're talking to the world. And I, so I, I began the story um, with a little more gravity uh, talking about AIDS um, from, a, from a different standpoint, from a standpoint I never saw covered back then. Back when the AIDS epidemic was happening, there was a lot of coverage about statistics and um, victims, but um, I didn't see a lot of coverage on um, the secondhand casualties, the families and the loved ones, and uh, the ripple effect of these tragedies, these personal tragedies. So I kind of took it from that angle with Kachu um, uh, at the center of it, and that kind of set this more serious tone from then on, where this aspect was there. Now, how did that happen? What was in her past? What is the problem now? Why is she hiding in suburbia with Francine? Mm-hmm. Who is it she's hiding from? You know, and it just kind of steamrolled from there. Did you think you were you were taking a risk by having a, a same-sex couple, even if it wasn't terribly explicitly stated, you know, at a time when that was, I was going to say still novel, but at least a little more novel? I didn't see it as a risk. I saw it. It was just more of my anti-establishment right. side. I have a huge anti-establishment streak in the middle of me. I know I look like a dentist, but I'm not. <laughs> I look conservative because I've lost my hair, but uh, and I'm too old to dress like a hipster. But inside of me, I'm still a 17-year-old kid drawing underground comics. So um, when I did that, it was two things. One of them was uh, I lived through the 70s when everybody slept with everybody. Um, it was just love, free love. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, everybody was wanting to get laid, and everybody did. Um, that is so hard to understand these days. I, I know. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I might as well be talking about the Roman Empire. I know. But anyway, that was in my background. Um, and the other thing was that, uh, like I talked, I mentioned the AIDS epidemic. Well, it was on my radar because my first cousin, Ben, who was exactly my age, uh, had already died 
as one of the early victims of the AIDS epidemic. He died in 1984 in San Francisco. And uh, I didn't find out for like six months Mm -hmm. that that had happened. And so I was very upset and bitter about it for a couple of years. And when it was time to write, you know, my series, I thought about Ben and I wanted to do something of a loving homage to the gay industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not the gay industry, the gay <laughs> community. <laughs> uh, the gay you're gonna, you're gonna give into the conspiracy want, theories now. Well, you know, it's a widespread right wing industry. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to give something back to the community. Mm-hmm. It was just my way of hugging Ben and people he cared about and saying, you know, um, you're not alone. You know, more people care than you think about. And I'm straight, but you mean the world to me. You know, so I was just kind of like kind of joining the gay the gay pride parade in my own way. You know, it's it was the best way I could do that. Did you feel like you were in a place where you could sort of accurately portray uh, a, a relationship between two women? That, you, that it was a voice that you could tap into or that could represent? No, I, I have no I have no understanding of women, no understanding of especially what it's like to be a gay woman. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I'm completely unqualified for that. But so what I did was I just wrote from the inside out. I just wrote a human being, two human beings, and then I wrote their emotions and their heart and their mind. And then the very last minute, you either put a a sex on them. Mm -hmm. And that's how you do it. You know, you just write human beings. And then uh, once you do that, I, I discovered that once you write that way, not only do people of orientations can all relate, but also people from different cultures. Somebody in uh, uh, Japan or Germany or Israel, everybody can understand the conversation and the point of the relationship um, because it's all so universal. I, I'm, I mean, speaking of that reaction, you know, so at, at what point were you like, oh, this is, this is connecting. This is, this is be- becoming a thing that, that is significant. I, well, at first I thought it was just a comic book industry cult thing. Mm-hmm. Like, um, oh, great. I have my 30 followers. Um, but then I started getting letters from people that were not gay, mm-hmm. that were not re- normally reading comics. Like there was a, a, I got a couple of letters from a priest, a Catholic priest, uh, somewhere in the east, um, eastern United States. He started writing when I got to about issue 20 or something, and he said, you know, uh, I don't normally say this, but I've been reading this story, and I can see that these two were meant for each other, and I I see the the point you're making, and I, I'm really hoping that they can work it out and that these two girls can get together. Um, it just seems like the right thing. And when I got that, I thought, I mean, I, I've never forgotten it. I'm telling you. Yeah. I, 20, 20 years later, I'm telling you about it. So that's when I knew that the story was having some sort of impact beyond just like, you know, just its little uh, circle of comic existence, you know. Wow, that's nuts! Um, in in a really good way, I imagine that's 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 quite a motivator. You know, it's not something I aim. It's not something I aim for. I mm-hmm. mean, you can tell from the, the way we talked about it. I, I didn't start this with sure. an agenda. Uh, I was just writing about stuff that I cared about, and I think because I was just pouring my heart into it. Um, you know, if you do anything in front of people and you pour your heart into it, uh, somebody's gonna have some empathy for you. And I just think the book managed to find empathy with people with good hearts. Yeah, I, I think that's probably definitely true. And I've, I mean, I've, I think I've seen that witnessed at your, uh, at your panels in San Diego over the years and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and then, so then you just did that for quite a while. Did you know, you know, how long you were going to go or were you writing it out until, you know, like when did you have an idea like this is going to last this long? I'm going to do it well, this way. Okay. One last, this is how I grew up influence. One okay. last one. This was the last one to go. 
I started that series and I thought, oh, okay, now I have my blondie. Now I have my peanuts. I'll do this for the rest of my life. And because I grew up thinking, you know, if you manage to get the character of a lifetime, which I did with Mm Kachu, then that's what you do the rest of your life. This was my Superman. Um, So, yeah, I thought I was going to do it forever. And I could have, I'm sure, uh, in my mind. But the industry changed. The industry imploded. Um, By the time we got to, like, 2006, there was only one distributor left. I had lost 17 distributors. And none of those orders from those distributors went to the the remaining, to the survivors. Mm -hmm. Every distributor I lost, I lost their orders. So my numbers just were were just were a fraction of what they used to be, and um, by the time we got to 2006, I knew I was going to have to stop the series because the order numbers for single issues were so low that I just couldn't make my house payment. Right. Um, And everybody was trade waiting, Um, and you can't live off trades. The order numbers for trades are small; they're more like a bonus at the end of the year. It's not something you can live on. so it had. I had to find an, another monthly series that I could do, and it was time to stop. What do you think predicated that? That it's it's funny because I when you said the industry imploded, I instantly was like, well, it could have been this time or this time or this time. When so <laughs> when you said it was later, the, what you said was later than I think that I had in mind. Because I don't tend to think of you know mid two thousands as a really rough time for comics, but it is. It was a rough time for indie comics. Um, and it was, and, and a lot of it was because of trade waiting mm-hmm. um, and, and other things that became popular. It's not because uh, we, hit an, we hit an iceberg as an industry, uh, right. but you're right. We've hit, we've hit icebergs like three times in the yeah. last 20 years. And you weathered those. I did because it's not about me. Right. It's about the big guys. Mm-hmm. And I am just the pilot fish on the back of the well, you know. I need Marvel to survive and be healthy and stay in the right. industry because they're my whale that I float underneath, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, the it's funny. The trade paperbacks really kind of got started from more of the smaller published titles because they had tiny print runs, like I told you about mine. So people that would find the book six months later, they could not find those issues. They were gone. So we started putting out trade paperbacks so that new readers could find the series without having to do, you know, chases to chase down the old issues. And that's what I did. Yeah, that's that was which was the way of trades at that point. That was that was the point of trades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, when trades became prevalent and they're everywhere, then the syndrome starts of, oh, I think I'll just wait for the trade coming out and read it all at once. Mm Which leaves the series hanging. That's like nobody watching a TV series when it's on TV. Right. They're just going to wait for it to hit Netflix. Uh, the the TV series won't last because there's just no demographic. So you see this happening. You you sort of wrap it up. And you know how long how long were you sort of seeing the writing on the wall before you're like, okay, this is this isn't. I'm not going to pull out of this tailspin. Yeah, uh, probably three to four years in advance. Mm-hmm. So I wrote it down for, you know, two years and, and thought, uh, you know, every month when we got our diamond orders, it was just a bad day. Um, and I was, you know, I, I had a, I was pretty angry about it because mm-hmm. I'd poured myself into it. But, you know, there's what are you going to do? I mean, it's just the world turns. So. It's- it's really interesting because I remember that time as a, a really good and creative time for the book. Yeah. Well, that's because I, I, the book was my way of hiding. Yeah. The worse my life gets, the more I hide inside my work. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was just, my attitude was, yeah, I was angry, but I poured it into, I tried to pour it into a creative outlet, such as I'm going to make a book that's so good it cannot be ignored. Mm-hmm. Instead of sloughing it off and like, well, if you don't care, I don't care. I took the opposite approach and thought, this is I'm going to make the best thing out there, and uh, people have they have to read it. So I, that was my attitude, and I tried, um, but you can't beat the the trends. So yeah, 
Yeah, that's 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 so. You finish up Strangers in Paradise. You know how do you how do you come up with something that that can follow that at least in you know in your own mind, but also in, in terms of the the market. That must have been horrifying. Yeah, it is because you're the you're the guy who writes the lesbian book. <laughs> you know, and that's the only thing people. If people don't read your book, that's what they think, and they that's the only thing they think. So you're branded. So I knew that what I wanted to do was um, a different genre because uh, I'd seen this syndrome in the TV industry where, like, if you only did one thing, like you only shoot red wagon commercials, then people think you can only shoot a red wagon. They don't mm-hmm. think you can shoot a blue wagon. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to be pegged as a red wagon guy and nothing else. Um, going forward, so I came, I thought I had a lot of ideas in the drawer, but when it was time to, when I finished SIP and we had the closing party and I came home and started going through my notes for the next series, none of them looked good enough anymore. They all looked mm-hmm. dated. So I realized I had no idea. And I was kind of burned out for a few months. Sure. I sat around and did nothing. And then... Um, my wife said, okay, we're just about out of money. Either you figure out another comic or you have to go back to editing. Mm-hmm. And that scared the hell out of me. So I sat down real hard and in about a week, one week, started binging ideas and I came up with the idea for Echo. And I really just kind of put it together from a lot of different things I like to read. I like to read about math and science. And I just finished reading Bill Bryson's book, um, a brief history of nearly everything, mm-hmm. which kind of ties up how all the earth sciences and science in general cropped up over the course of civilization. So it was all in my brain. Mm-hmm. So, and that's how I came up with it, out of the blue. And and I'm, what is it that you did differently? You know, if you if you saw, is the idea that you know, Strangers in Paradise was more niche, and so the Echo would be. I guess more broadly appealing or was it just, I'm going to do another great story and, and, you know, (laughs) based on the other thing. Uh, no, the, the way we talked and described it here was, okay. Strangers in paradise had been this long indulgent stream of consciousness work. Mm -hmm. I had poured everything into it. Um, all my ideas, my songs, my poetry, my prose, everything. Sure. So the next thing needs to be disciplined and a you know a tight script, tight outline, uh, three act play, beginning, middle, end, and just get in and get out. Um, in thirty issues, and so that's what I did. I made a three act outline and I followed it pretty closely, trying to be disciplined, mm-hmm. try to do a story in the traditional way, the way most people do it. Uh, because I was trying to clean up professionally and behave, work more professionally, trying to get on top of my uh, financial difficulty of making sure I can get a monthly book that is strong in the market. You know, were you able to make up the gap that you weren't covering with Strangers in Paradise, which at least had a cult following uh, in a way, you know, and then you're coming in with an all new property in a in a market that is a tough market for that. You know, you did it for 30 issues. You must've been able to pull it off to some extent. Well, what I found was that when you launch a new one, um, there's, uh, interest and chatter. Mm -hmm. So you get, uh, whatever good orders you're, you're, you can get on your first one. And then you start the decline from that new high. So, um, it's like going back to the top of the slide and then you work your way down again. And um, that's kind of how it worked. And once I saw that it was happening again on the second issue, I mean, I think it took me two or three years to do that one, the second series. Mm-hmm. Um, I began to notice that the people who were hot properties were launching a new book every year. Yeah. Um, they would launch a new title and they would work on the first three to five issues and then hand it off to somebody and then they'd go launch another one and that's why they were always in the news. And I thought, well, I can't do that. I need to, I'm more of a storyteller. I'm stuck with the series I launch. (laughs) Maybe I just need to do a better series. And I kept thinking that all the way into Rachel, that I just need to write a better series. 
And <laughs> did that work out? No. <laughs> and I, I, I'm on. It's, uh, this, it's, it's not about you, you but I, well, because the way you said it, I thought I wanted it to. I was like, good, you're still doing it. And, and but I, I know it's a hard market, and I know that you know latest, hottest, newest thing. Um, you know, but you, you keep going after it and you're still there. You know, you said you almost ran out of money at one point and I'm like, well, maybe the film rights and then the trades and everything worked out together. Um, I want, cause I want you to make comics. So I'm like, well, you still are. So something's going okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have no complaints. Uh-huh. It's just, uh, it's just a lone cartoonist trying to figure out how to surf the wave of the trending and the dynamics, the order dynamics and all that. It's an interesting thing. It would be, I wish, you know, it'd be interesting to, to read other people's stories, I think. Well, and yours, yours is interesting because it it spans eras in, in a way, you know, with a single property that went through all those things. And, you know, you know, as you're finishing up Strangers in Paradise and you're, you're launching Echo and then going into Rachel Rising – we're seeing a different version of image comics, which is sort of now the model for indie comics. And, and you, you know, didn't go that way. You know, what I'm wondering, you know, what was the advantage that you had of keeping it all in house as opposed to, you know, I know you were at image for a a time, um, Mm -hmm. but then you sort of stuck, stuck on your own, you know, do you, what was the benefit of doing that? Uh, The the reason I went to image was the same reason Jeff Smith went. That was the year we'd lost one of the, one of the last two big distributors. So everybody was looking for a shelter in the storm and image comics had a, an exclusive with the new distributor, you know, diamond, the mm-hmm. remaining guy. And so suddenly that summer, everybody was freaked out. And if you could get image to take you on, you were going to survive the year. It was as simple as that. They were a lifeboat. Um, so Jeff went to image that summer and at San Diego, I talked to Larry Martyr, and I said, if I need to come over, will you take me? And he said, yeah, I think we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hung on for a little while and didn't go in that first wave. And um, I think later that year, I got a call from Jim Lee. And he said, you know what? I'm going to start my own creator-owned imprint. Would you like to be part of that? And that sounded like the perfect solution for me. So I did that. Mm-hmm. That's how I got in there. And then you went back on your own, and you've stayed on your own, even even through all that. Yeah, and, and I did that for about a year, and um, I used that time to to, to clean my house uh, business-wise, which was, um, I went from a small um, DBA into a major, into a real corporation, Right. and my wife left her day job to come run our business, and... Um, because I was terrible at the business side, mm-hmm. just just awful. But my wife is terrific at it. So when we finally took it back on and started self-publishing again, you know, this time we, my wife had it all shipshape, and we were supposedly doing, you know, doing it right and doing what we do today to this day. So, uh, you know, and during all that time, you you did you did your fair share of work. Uh, Mostly with DC, as I remember, but you definitely, you know, did some work for higher stuff along there. Uh, were you doing that, you know, just to help pay some of the extra bills? Was it was it fun? Did you think, oh, I can I can have a sort of second side? Because like, drawing and writing and and lettering, you did the whole book. I, I don't know when you had time for that. Well, I I didn't really. I mean, mm-hmm. but we needed to supplement, right? So I took on the extra work just to you know to. To help, you know, boost everything up. And uh, I remember one time, I think the time that I got caught was when I finished Strangers in Paradise and I wanted to do something else for a few months just to, you know, for the change. And I called uh, Joe Casada and I said, Joe, I'm kind of looking for something to do for a few months. Do you have anything for me? And he said, oh, let me call you back. And he called back that afternoon and said, how about Runaways and Spider-Man loves Mary Jane? <laughs> and I said, you mean both of them? And he said, yeah, we, they're looking for a writer, and you'd be perfect for both of them. And I said, okay, yeah, I, I'll do that for 
if I can do it for one year, and then by that time I'll want to go back and start my own again. He said, okay, sounds good. And that was it. And the thing is, is that by the time it was, it really kind of kicked in, the work kind of kicked in, and I started working on it, mm-hmm. it was just about the time I started launching Echo. So I ended up doing all three series at the same time. Oh, jeez. <laughs> It was funny, but that was a fun time. Uh, and then eventually, it just because we knew all the editors back then, um, you know, you get this pin up or that short story or whatever, you know. Everybody knew everybody back then at yeah. the DC Marvel. And the DC Marvel editors, would, they almost were just across the street from each other, and they would just go back and forth between companies all the time. And it was very, very much still like an old school days where, you know, there were 30 people working there and you knew most of them, you know, that kind of thing. So how have, how do you, this is a big question, but you know, how do you see that it has changed in that time? Say since the nineties to the time when you ended Strangers to Paradise to today, it feels like a seismic change, you know, and have, have, I mean, have you felt that? Do you still feel like you, you know, comics as a thing or does it feel like a whole different thing? Oh, you mean in the big picture sense? I guess, but also as that's reflected sort of in your day-to-day interactions with, with that, you know, with the edit. If you knew everybody back then, it seems small, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know anybody at DC except Jim Lee mm-hmm. um, and Dan DiDio. I don't know any of the editors. Um, and I don't know their talent pool. They have a lot of 20-something and artists all over the world who work uh, on their books and I've never met any of them. So it's different nowadays. Um, Do you keep up with any of the sort of comics that are, that are coming out mainstream or otherwise? uh, Yeah, I pay attention to anything that's getting buzz, Mm -hmm. but if it's, if it's not buzzing, um, you know, if it's, if it's just in the middle of the pack, then I'm probably not noticing it to be honest. Um, but I go to a lot of shows right? and I'm, I really like to talk to everybody that's there and see what they're doing and all that. So, um, I feel like I'm really paying attention. I, I try to, um, there's a lot more to pay attention to now and it's hard to figure out what it is you're supposed to pay attention to. That's the case, but you know, you're right. So, which is why you don't want to miss a week of school. I mean, you right. need to go to class every day. <laughs> Otherwise, you can come back and be overwhelmed. So, and I and I'm a big believer in living in the now. I I'm not some old guy who is trying to stay in my favorite decade. You know, I I'm all about the now and what we're doing this summer because I really have experienced firsthand and seen it firsthand that whatever you did last year is so over. You know, you have to. It's all about your next book, and so it better and it better be a really good one. So. Do you still uh, do you are you still a fan of the comic book form? Are you watching? Do you still have favorites? Do you ever get sort of new like see some new work that is either really inspiring or really impressive? You know what that's like. It's like having heard a lot of music. Uh-huh. So um, now, if something's going to impress you, it has to be really good. Right. So I feel like that with it. Um, when I see something that's done really well it's just an absolute joy and i feel like a teenager all over again discovering something great um but if it's like a hundred other things um then i just kind of take it as you know the daily grind you know there's an average a lot uh, a lot of stuff is averages out to look the same read the same a lot of the same plots and that's just human nature um and just because somebody is putting out something right now that is very derivative doesn't mean that they don't have the potential to bust through and come up with the next great thing, you know? So you're watching a lot of people develop and you have to be encouraging and let them do their invisible man story. Mm-hmm. Don't discourage people from, Oh, I, you know, invisible man stories are over. Don't even mess with it. And then, but if the guy wants to do it, let him do it because who knows where he'll take it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I try to be encouraging of people who are not putting out the best, the freshest thing. But when somebody does, man, it's just an absolute joy. What is it that, 
everybody sort of has the thing that they really admire or love in comics. You know, do you, is it, is it storytelling? Is it draftsmanship? Is there sort of a, a thing that's, that's, you know, something that impresses you that a lot of people don't necessarily notice or do well? Well, I think everybody notices the art first. Mm-hmm. Um, so the art conversation comes and goes real quick. Um, it's, you're asking people to invest precious time of their limited lives to read a story. So it's much harder to appreciate a writer. Um, but when you read a story that really gets to you and makes an impact on you, it's it's the kind of thing that you you may never forget. As long as you live, you'll always remember that scene, you know. Like, I remember finales from Roger Zelazny's stories, and I'll never forget them. I mean, he impacted me for life. Um, so, and I'll tell you, the last, the last couple of times it's happened to me in comics was uh, Jimmy Palmiotti's uh, Power Girl. He, he did that. He wrote that for a year. Yeah. It was an absolute joy to read that book. I, I looked forward to it every month, just like I was 13 years old. And then Peter David wrote a short run on Supergirl uh, at one point. And she was just the most en- endearing, lovable thing I've ever read in my life, you know. And I actually, when I finally got to see him again, I, g- I gave him a hug for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for writing that. You brought a lot of joy to my life. So, yeah, you know, when somebody writes the good ones, man, it's it's worth reading a lot of uh, normal just to find the good ones. Yeah, that is still the thing that gets exciting for me. Um that's really sweet. I like hearing that. Um, mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about um, you. You know, before we wrap up, uh, you brought Strangers in Paradise back. You're doing it again and still. How how did that come about? And I know we skipped a lot of things in the middle, but uh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's too long. Um, well, it, it came about because I haven't learned my lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just if this is the 25th year. You know, I started in 93, and so 2018 is the 25th anniversary of my start. And I just thought it'd be appropriate to celebrate the year with the the story that, you know, brought me to the dance. Um, and like I said, I do consider Kachu to be my character of a lifetime. Right. Um, I love her dearly, and, and whatever I have today, she got me. So... I just wanted to do it out of, you know, for good reasons. But uh, as, as far as uh, comics and story, I, I did have a good reason to come back. Um, I left this dangling participle in the story, and um, it did it did flare up into a problem, and now they have to deal with it. And um, So I'm excited about it. How long has the story existed in your head? Uh, about four years. Mm-hmm. I, I because I keep continue to sketch them. Kachu is my number one sketch request, and so I've been drawing her every day. Right. And every time I draw her, I think about what she's doing, and this kind of developed in my head. Oh, this here's this problem, you know. And also, I was noticing when you get the character of a lifetime, like uh, Sherlock Holmes or James Bond, a lot of times those writers thought, oh, well, I'm just going to write these three books and we're done. But then you know the public continues to talk about it and you come back for one more book and then another and then another so it's okay i guess it's what writers do i'm gonna ask you a question that i i know that you have been asked before but uh i I guess i'll just apologize for that uh you frequently are, are writing female protagonists and uh you know, earlier you said, I'm just a guy I did that. You know, when you started, you didn't know anything about women. You didn't know what that was. So where does that come from? Why, why do you keep going back to, um, you know, these young women characters over and over again? Um, I think it's because I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, I've lost every argument I've ever had with a, with a woman. <laughs> If, if you can relate to that, raise your hand. <laughs> it's up. It's up. Okay. So I'm, I, 
when I was cartooning at home, I would write these conversations between Francine and her boyfriend, Freddie. And there would be these arguments, you know. And maybe I was rehashing arguments I'd had last the week before or 10 years before. But once I started writing them as a satirist and a humorist, it got to be kind of fun. You know, like Freddie's... And you cast yourself as Freddie, which is not flattering. No, it's not. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the only safe place to stand on the stage. I don't dare get near anyone else. So, I mean, I am Freddie when it comes to relationships in terms of I just... I did it all wrong. I say I say everything wrong. I make every mistake. And um, but Freddie, of course, is saying all the things that people don't dare say, and he's just being that obnoxious bore. Um, that is the reason for that is because it rushes the conversation along. Instead of taking six years to break you down to finally say it, Freddie will say it in the first three minutes. So it rushes the conversation along, and we can get to the point of the matter quickly and. Um, once I started writing Freddie and kind of got into the swing of that, of him saying all the wrong things, I mean, he's the number one mansplainer of all time. Um, so then I realized putting him and Kachu in the same room is just dynamite material potential for any writer. And I began to realize that's how comedy works, you know? I mean, that's what comedy writers do is they try to get two characters who do not agree with each other and then put them in, slam them together, you know? It's just physics. The yin and the yang. And sparks happen. So, you know, if I wrote about two people that were just alike and they got along and agreed on everything, I've got nothing to write about. Um, so, Freddie was my gold mine. And then Kachu is her own gold mine because she's just kicking every beehive there is. Um... And that's why you see Francine and David as more balanced Mm -hmm. uh, characters to balance off this wildness. Otherwise, it'd all be milk and cheese, right? Yeah. Um, But you know what? I found a sketchbook from when I was nine years old, and it has a lot of drawings of superheroes. But there's also uh, sequential panels of a guy and a girl talking about a relationship. I think she's breaking up with him or something. Who draws that when they're nine years old? I, my eight-year-old isn't going to start doing it next year. I know that much. Well, I don't know. It's it's. I'm just wired that way. So. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah, I I would have said I just made all this stuff up when I got older, but finding that sketchbook made me think, made me really question, what the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> you just, I can't you, have, help you, have, it. you have questions, questions that need answers, and they come out in the term form of cartoon, apparently. Yeah, I think, you know, when people talk about novelists, they say, write what you know. But when it comes to humor, you need to write about what you don't know. <laughs> well, uh, I think I'm kind of, I think I might be out of, out of things to bug you about and you can get back to your life. But um, so we're, we're, we're doing Strangers in Paradise for a little while longer. I uh, just wrapped up Motor Girl. Rachel mm-hmm. Rising happened in the middle there. You've mm-hmm. uh, you've been pretty busy, uh, despite the decline of the independent comics market. Well, I've been lucky, and I think a big part of it has also been uh, my wife, Robin. Yeah. Um, she really knows what she's doing, and she knows more people in the industry than I do. Um, so she's really worked hard to keep the abstract studio going. So uh, all credit to my wife on that one. I've I've seen her in action. I think I think you're I think you're 100 spot on there, and not even just in a political way. Well, thanks so much. It was really really great to talk about all this with you. Oh, thanks, Josh. It's a pleasure. Um, and thank you so much for what what you guys do about talking about comics and promoting them and everything like that. And we people sure appreciate it. I I get feedback all the time from people that learned about me um, through you and iFanboy and everything. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for giving us something worth talking about. And that's another Talks Blow to the Bag. I want to thank Terry for talking to me. I've been a big fan for a very long time. He was a really big part of what made us love comics enough to start doing this. Um, And it was really just great to chat with him. 
Um, and thank you to the iFanboy patrons for cracking my voice and supporting the show uh, to bring back this uh, show and the Booksplode shows. I'll be back again with another interview in two months. Uh, and, of course, next month is going to be a Booksplode where we talk about some book. You'll figure out what that is then. You can also go to iFanboy.com, listen to our regular Pick of the Week podcast. Follow us at iFanboy on Twitter or Facebook.com slash iFanboy as well. And, of course, uh, make sure you get to Patreon.com slash iFanboy if you want to support the show. Uh, thanks, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.